Have you ever wondered what the difference is between a PT and an OT? How about a nutritionist and a dietitian, or a physician assistant and a nurse practitioner? If so, you are not alone. Even those who work in healthcare may be unclear about some of the roles and responsibilities of various other industry professionals. It's why we created this podcast to discuss the similarities and the differences between certain healthcare professions as well as the misconceptions, plus how those professionals work together to care for patients. I'm Catherine Mazone, and you are listening to Healthcare Who Does It. you think of when you hear the word genetics or geneticists? Is it Gregor Mendel and his pea pods from the 1800s? Perhaps the double helix denoting a DNA molecule? Or maybe it's a mosquito in amber and B.D. Wong in a lab coat, regardless of what comes to mind. Truth is, this ever-emerging field plays a crucial role in everyday healthcare, and you don't have to be well-connected or wealthy to work with one of these healthcare professionals. This time on Healthcare Who Does It, we'll sit down with a geneticist and a genetics counselor to learn more about their roles. Dr. Anna Hurst is an associate professor. She's a medical geneticist in the Hearsing School of Medicine here at UAB. And Alicia Gomes is an assistant professor and a certified genetic counselor at the Department of Clinical and Diagnostic Science in the School of Health Professions. Dr. Hurst, what got you into genetics? I was always really interested in um, the idea of genetics. I mean, going back to like learning about Punnett squares in middle school, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, I grew up on a farm and we one time had a yellow dog who had a litter of black and brown puppies. And that just blew my mind that it was possible. Um, and so I really was interested in traits and how things even like hair color were passed through families, um, but also got really interested in genetic conditions and in college took a class called genetics and human affairs. And it was all about how individuals and people were affected by um, genetic uh, conditions. And that really got me interested in genetic counseling, which is then how I learned about medical genetics. Alicia. I think I was a late bloomer only because I had no clue that genetics was a thing besides CSI for a long time. I took a genetics course in undergrad. And as a part of the course, in addition to learning about basic genetic concepts, he took a portion of the class to do more ethical considerations associated with genetic counseling and genetics. Just thinking about that there's no complete answer that is a one-size-fits-all for every person is what really inspired me to really consider genetics in general and genetic counseling. And so from there, I thought I wanted to be a lab tech uh, working in a genetics lab because I didn't know genetic counseling existed still. And it was not until uh, my undergrad year, like the last semester, that my professor was like, you should be a genetic counselor and introduced me to one which gave me the opportunity to get a better perspective. But I felt like it was too late to make a rash decision in my life based off of one conversation. So I worked in a clinical genetics lab for a year and a half, 
where I was a lab tech, but I was working in a lab that had genetic counselors who saw patients and also were lab GCs. And it gave me the opportunity to see all the possibilities for the profession for me. And I just knew that's what I wanted to do. Also, I kept talking to the the samples. And so I knew I needed a profession where I had conversation and dialogue with individuals as a part of what I did. To be clear, you literally spoke to objects. Yes, I, I considered the sample because the, the samples were patient samples. So I was like, these are people. Yeah, makes sense. I have to know what a genetic counselor is. That's a great question because most people that I meet on the street have no clue what a genetic counselor is or does. The way I think about it and the way I explain it is it's almost like the nurse role with the regular practice provider. We are the ones who help in facilitating the testing process for patients and help in the assessment of their family and deciding whether or not there is a concern for a genetic disease. So one big piece that is a key component for genetic counseling is that we're non-directive. So, so much of healthcare is paternalistic where, you know, you have a healthcare provider, they tell you what to do, they tell you what you cannot do. But with genetic counseling, it is more educational that we explain the risks We explain the disease, but we facilitate the decision-making process with patients. So it's more advocacy approach. Can can you think of any other health profession that does that? I can. Can you? Really? I mean, just maybe the field of counseling and helping people align information with their own values to make a decision that's that's most in line with their goals. Yeah, that's true. I think that's where the counseling part and genetic counselor comes from, because we do consider the emotions um, and the family dynamics that go into the fact that if someone has a genetic disease, it doesn't just affect them. It affects the family. And every family is not a cookie cutter you know, scenario that you can predict. And some people just need help processing what it means for them and their family. And that's a, a big piece of genetic counseling as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you meet with families that are either considering having genetic testing done or have already had genetic testing done and then help them to decide where to go from there. You got it. So as genetic counselors, you nice job. I did. So as genetic counselors, there's three traditional places you see genetic counselors prenatally when there is a family history of something or based on age, there's a concern or something was seen on ultrasound. And we facilitate the process of helping them understand what the risks are and what their potential testing opportunities could be. In the pediatric standpoint, we work with a geneticist and in a team approach, see patients that have multiple health issues and are at risk of potentially having a genetic cause for what is seen and help them decide and understand what the potential diagnosis may be and what the testing opportunities could be. And then in cancer, you see genetic counselors as well for similar scenarios. You know, there's multiple family members that have cancer or cancers at early ages or multiple cancers in one person. So it increases the red flag that it may be due to a genetic disorder, and we help the families process that. So all of these are things that are critical points in people's lives when you're pregnant or, you know, someone has been diagnosed with cancer or has significant health issues. So there's also the emotional 
components that we help them process. Dr. Hurst, what is a geneticist? As a geneticist, we work really closely with genetic counselors, and we're usually seeing patients sometimes even in tandem. But our component is really focused on the diagnostic side and the medical management. So we will see patients and kind of evaluate, like, what are their symptoms? What are the specific features or what we call a phenotype that maybe might point to a specific condition? So sometimes I, I tell people I'm a rare disease doctor because that at least maybe makes a little bit more sense than saying geneticist. Um, but really we think about um, ways that different rare conditions can present, what the diagnosis might be, and then what's our best testing strategy. But that's often then when we're talking to a genetic counselor who can help really break that down for the family to explain what that testing process would look like. And is testing something they even want to consider? Because there's a lot of reasons why people may or may not want to know if they have um, a genetic predisposition for something themselves or in their family. We're usually working together during that process. But then when results come back, we help with figuring out a customized treatment plan of how do we use this information to improve the person's health? How do we maybe make a treatment plan that's customized and individualized to them? And we can follow patients over time, also help with getting a team together. A lot of genetic conditions affect more than just one part of the body. So we get to think about head to toe. How do we keep that person healthy? Do they need more frequent eye exams? Do they need to see a cardiologist to get their heart checked up? Are they at risk for kidney disease? And we need to be doing types of screenings to identify problems before they happen, just based on what we know about the genetic condition that they have and what that might predispose them to. Anna, can you talk a little bit about the dysmorphology that you guys do? Because I think that's such a unique part of what a geneticist does and a, a key piece, especially in the pediatrics world. Sure. Dysmorphology means difference in form, um, and that's because a lot of genetic conditions can be associated with unique facial features because some of the same genes that influence brain development also influence face development. You might um, have seen somebody before who has Down syndrome, and there are some characteristic features that might point you to thinking that person has Down syndrome, and really they probably look more like their family than anything else. Um, but some of those features can clue doctors into a diagnosis and help them kind of get on the pathway to having more customized medical planning. We study facial features a lot, and there are probably, you know, several dozen, if not a hundred or so conditions that we could maybe recognize just by meeting somebody and doing a really thorough exam where we look at eyes, ears, nose, kind of size, placement, how all those features are oriented together. That can point us towards ordering a more specific test to, to maybe get the right answer sooner. Are there traits that may not be recognizable to the layperson that you might be able to recognize? Yeah, so even things about shapes of eyes or ears, things like that could be little clues. And we call those like minor features. It's not anything that affects a person's health or overall well-being, but it's just a little clue. And it kind of grew from the fact that for many years, geneticists didn't have the types of genetic testing that we have today. Um, we're lucky now that we have things like genome sequencing, tests that we don't necessarily always have to know what we're looking for when we send the test. Um, but in the past, we had to really use that exam to know what gene to test a patient for. I guess the profession has really evolved over the years. Even in the last 10 years, I think if you asked me when I first started on the path of becoming a geneticist, what I thought my career would look like compared to what I'm doing now, it's, it's absolutely incredible and I love what I'm doing, but it's nothing like I would have predicted. Yeah, that's so true. Um, you know, in two, 2016 is when um, a specific testing approach where you could look at multiple genes simultaneously it became more widely used. And after that, it was just almost like an explosion of unique and new testing opportunities that became available 
for patients where the cost started to significantly reduce to get genetic tests. And so it opened up more and more genetic testing possibilities, which I think is great. And forgive me if this sounds ignorant, why not just get a 23andMe test? And I'm sure people have probably mentioned that before. Um, but, oh, you're giving me the side eye. I see that. I see that. I'm like, who wants to take this one? No, I think Alicia does. <laughs> what I always remind people is that there are some key differences between 23andMe and a diagnostic test. One is that a diagnostic test is coming through a laboratory that has had significant regulation and bodies that ensure that the testing has the highest sensitivity that it can. And when it says it's looking for a disorder, it is meant to have the highest yield of detection rate that they can. With 23andMe, it is advertised and marketed as a recreational test. It makes no guarantees regarding sensitivity or specificity of the results that you receive. So to use it in medical care can be very difficult. The other piece is that um, most genetics labs are doing the testing for the science and the academics, but because 23andMe and other labs that are direct-to-consumer laboratories focus more on the recreational aspects of it, they are a business, they are a company, it is their data. They do have some privacy laws, but the laws are not the same between a diagnostic lab and a direct-to-consumer lab. So I always make sure people understand that there's a significant difference. We do see in clinics sometimes that patients will say, oh, I don't need testing because I've already had a 23andMe test. It's not to say that sometimes you can't find out something that is healthcare-related, on a 23andMe test, but it is significantly different in the sensitivity and yield. And I love that these tests are raising just the general public's awareness that genetics can be important for health. Um, but I do worry about um, kind of misconflating that information. Um, I think of it as infotainment, like it's it's entertaining, but and it's information, but it's not the same as a medical grade test. And unfortunately, there are some situations where people have done that test, found some information that might be medically relevant. Um, but then when we see them in a medical setting, we say, hey, we need to repeat this in a medical grade laboratory. And that first test actually was was wrong. There's been some studies that have shown that there's up to like a 40% false positive rate with some of the technologies that are being used in the direct-to-consumer setting. So I worry that people might think that one of those results is an absolute and then make a medical decision based on something that's not accurate. That kind of brings me to my next question, which is why you need a counselor to make some of these genetic testing decisions? There's a couple different lenses that I think about that from. One is the different types of tests, like we've been talking about direct-to-consumer versus diagnostic, but there's also different methods for testing that don't have the same sensitivity and yield. I also think about, you know, from year to year with the increase in technology, there's a difference in what we can and cannot detect. So even if someone had testing in 2003, now in 2023, we have different testing options we didn't have available then. And so as geneticists and genetic counselors, part of what our training and responsibility is, is to make sure that people appreciate the differences and get the right test that they need at the time. Why is it important to have a genetics counselor available? So that's a great question. Many people have the opportunity to get pregnant. 
but don't necessarily appreciate some of the risks that might factor into that. You always think about the anatomy scan. Most people think of it as the time that they find out if the pregnancy is a boy or a girl. Now, especially having kids as a genetic counselor, you think of it more of this is the diagnostic time where we can see some of the you know differences in the way the fetus has developed and what that could potentially mean as far as their health is concerned. When I think about prenatal and cancer, you know, these are components of healthcare that can affect anyone. But to take such complex things that you're considering, like these different genetic disorders or screening versus diagnostic testing options, these are very complex things that people don't encounter in their day-to-day world. And so I think education is one of the biggest pieces of genetic counseling to just make sure you're setting the stage for a person to understand where they are in this diagnostic process and then helping them to understand where you're going to go from here. And once we make a diagnosis, if there is one to make, then helping them understand what that means for everyone else in the family and what additional decisions they may have to make. In the pediatric world, I think because we have that team approach, it's really nice because the genetic counselors really get to focus more on the family and putting everything in the context for you know, risk recurrence, uh, for example. But we also get to talk about you know, what's been going on from year to year and making sure that child, as they get older, better understand their disease. We talked about these three, but there's so many other areas where you now see genetic counselors playing a role. I think that's one of the biggest things that sets us apart from geneticists is that you do have, especially with the influx of genetic testing in different subspecialties, you know, I think about cardiology or neurology. These are the people who are taking care of individuals with these specific uh, health issues, but then the genetic counselor is there for those unique cases that have a genetic component as well. So they have the opportunity to be a part of so many different areas of healthcare. When you say something like cancer, are you talking about someone who has cancer already or someone who's perhaps looking at their ancestry or their family history and seeing a history of breast cancer, let's say, and considering a double mastectomy because of that? Because we have heard that example. It could be either. Oftentimes the genetic counselors or even geneticists are working in parallel with the patient who maybe is actively undergoing a cancer treatment plan, but also their families. There's so many people who after a cancer diagnosis, their thought is, well, what about my kids and their kids? And we see a lot of people who in the midst of their own cancer treatment are worried about others and their family. For many of those cases, the best person to start testing with is the person who has an active diagnosis, because if we find the diagnosis in them, then maybe it's more informative to test their family members. So we can kind of figure out who in their family is the best candidate to start testing and work from there to kind of go through the family tree and see um, who also might benefit from talking to a genetic counselor. Maybe just think about timing of testing. It's not always just do you want to be tested or not, but have you thought about things like life insurance, the cost, or is insurance going to cover it? And do I have other treatment plans that this information could help inform just to make sure that it's it's the right time in that person's life to think about genetic testing? Are you about to get married? Where are you with your family decision making? And we we make sure people have that in consideration when they decide if it's an appropriate time to have testing.
even though I started with a pediatrics residency background, genetics is technically a second residency, so I can see people of all ages. So I see you know pediatric patients primarily, but also adults. Patients' parents can also become my patient very quickly. Once we've found something in a family, we start to even look upwards in the family tree. So that can be a really important time to, to think about the ways that genetic conditions can look different in people of varying ages. either of you work in a lab? Do you still play with your samples? Great question. So when I um, graduated from genetic counseling school, I really loved the idea of being a laboratory genetic counselor. Uh, And I came to UAB because it afforded me the opportunity to take on two roles. So I could be a lab GC and I could work in pediatric genetics as well. As a lab GC, I don't get to play with the samples per se. I know. I'm not wet bench lab work, so we don't hold a pipette in any fashion. But I am a part of the decision-making process for complex cases and sometimes routine cases for providers who aren't experienced with ordering genetic testing. And so we talk about what approach is the best approach for that sample I talk to the providers about what do these results mean in this particular patient's context, because while we would love to say that all genetic test results come back as positive or negative, there is a lot of gray area in between. And so as a lab GC, a lot of my role was talking through all those different results and what they meant for that particular patient, which I really enjoyed. I don't um, work in a lab directly either in the traditional sense when you think about pipetting things in a tube, but I work really closely with the testing labs that send tests for our patients. An example of that is I send a lot of um, testing called whole genome sequencing. And with genome sequencing, we're going to get a lot of those kind of in-between results that Alicia was talking about. And so for any individual, we're going to find, you know, even hundreds of, of variations that are just unique to them. And then our job is to try to figure out what might actually be the cause of a diagnosis. And so I'll meet with the laboratory and I know my patient really well. They know the data. And so we kind of get together and say, okay, of these findings, what do we think actually needs to go on the report? And then from there, once a report gets generated, that's when I'm in the clinic with the genetic counselor and we're returning those results and explaining it to patients. But I love being able to kind of see behind the scenes and then use the insight that I gained from the physical exam and from meeting my patient to then inform what, what the most likely diagnosis might actually be. You mentioned you work very closely with the genetics counselors. Tell me a little bit about what that looks like. You said complex cases for sure, but do you see them on a daily basis? In my routine clinical practice, usually um, the genetics counselor and the geneticist are there together, start visits by the genetic counselor obtaining family history and and, um, medical information, and then the geneticist comes in to perform the physical exam. Often then we'll collaborate and say, okay, well, you know, what is the information that you got? What did I get? And what might be the next step for testing? Is that testing clinically available? Does the patient's insurance cover it? And kind of involving the patient in that decision-making as well. Um, So sometimes we're just all in the room together as a group. In other cases, the genetic counselor is seeing the patient independently. And then as a geneticist, I kind of supervise and we discuss cases after the fact. Yeah, it, it's, it looks so different from clinic to clinic and hospital to hospital, but 
always think about it almost as a, a Sherlock Holmes and Watson approach where there's a lot of collaboration that happens between the two because we are looking at things from different perspectives sometimes, and it's really nice to complement each other. Right. So two different perspectives, but you have the same information and the same goals, essentially, to care for that patient. What other sort of health professionals do you all work with? From the medical genetic standpoint, we, we work with almost every discipline, and that's because you know, genetics affects every organ system. Some areas are more closely tied, things like neurology, um, developmental pediatrics, uh, based on my practice, but really it could be anything. Um, children with heart defects who are followed by cardiology and surgeons probably work the most with other physicians on the inpatient setting. So one thing that's different about the medical genetic side is that um, we also work a lot in the hospital and we might be on call um, a number of weeks a year. And that is to really handle any outside concerns or questions that someone wants the opinion of a geneticist on. So we usually get called to see every baby who's born with a birth difference. And the question is often from the neonatologist, is this birth difference something that's happening you know, in isolation or is it part of a bigger picture? We also get called anytime someone is admitted and the team wonders, could their admission be due to an undiagnosed genetic condition? Or also somebody who has a known genetic condition gets admitted to the hospital and maybe their condition is impacting the reason for their stay. And is there something about their condition that if we managed it differently, they might have a better outcome? Um, we also take a lot of phone calls from outside um, people who maybe have ordered a genetic test and don't know what to do with the results. Or maybe they're considering ordering a test or just wondering, should I even refer my patients to genetics? What do y'all do over there? Um, and so we get a lot of phone calls throughout the day from from really any physician across the state who has a question that might relate to genetics and their patient's care. From the genetic counseling standpoint, in addition to the physicians, uh, we also work with a lot of other out-of-the-box healthcare professionals. You see genetic counselors in laboratories, like I mentioned. There's also laboratory geneticists that are the lab directors for the labs and genetic counselors can be the ones writing the, the test reports in a lab. They can also work in insurance companies and be the person that's helping to decide if testing should be approved or declined. Uh, you can also see them working in policy and in the government as well. So there's a lot of other ancillary roles that genetic counselors can play in healthcare as well. Can you say the same thing, Dr. Hurst? Yeah, so a lot of that is also you know, similar opportunities for physicians. I think it just depends on how much um, you know, advocacy and some of these other roles you want to be involved in. Um, but definitely some of our professional societies, too, offer a lot of opportunities to kind of think about making genetic medicine something that's accessible on a national scale. Like trying to get insurance to pay for rare disease treatments is, is a big challenge that we're facing. I'm also really involved in the public health space when it relates to things like newborn screening. Every baby who's born gets a you know, heel prick at birth, and most people don't really think about that. But for some families, that's life-changing information. It's the first chance that they might learn that their child has one of you know, 50 or more conditions that, that are often screened for in different states um, that could, could have lifetime consequences. And, and one of the jobs in medical genetics is kind of being the first ones to get that information, to reach out to those families, and to say, hey, your, your child might have a genetic condition and we need to talk about this because the management for some of those in the first week of life can be life improving in many ways um, and can save lives. So um, we get to, to be involved in that process, also kind of advocating the state for what conditions maybe should be considered on that newborn screen. I 
I have a master's degree in genetic counseling. It's two years post-undergrad, um, and in those two years you learn it's kind of genetics boot camp in all things medical genetics, and then a portion of that time, usually a year or in some programs a year and a half, is spent seeing patients as well and practicing your, your genetic counseling skills. Once those two years are up, you are eligible to see patients and work as a practicing genetic counselor. So you get to, to do field work while you're still a student. You got it. Awesome. So we work in tandem with a certified genetic counselor, so someone who has sat for the board exam and is licensed to do what they do, and they help critique and supervise the potential genetic counselors, the students. And where did you start undergraduate-wise? I remember you saying that's where you really discovered what you wanted to do. You know, when I was five, if somebody asked me what I wanted to be, it was either a doctor or an astronaut. Oh, um, good choices, though. You know, right? If I could be a doctor in space, that would have been ideal. <laughs> but um, so I just went in with biology, you know, thinking pre-med, took some chemistry. I was like, oh, no, this is not, I can't be in school forever. I can't do this. That was just my personal you know, thing. So I really thought once I found genetics that I just wanted to work in a genetics lab, was considering a PhD, which also is a lot of years, but not what I was thinking of at the time. And that's what made me decide to just take some time off and figure out what I really wanted to do. And that's how I found genetic counseling. And what what did your training look like, Dr. Hurst? I studied biology and I had a minor in genetics just because the college I was at didn't have a genetics major, but worked in a lab, have a story kind of similar to Alicia where didn't really feel the immediate connection to the work. I wanted to to have something where I felt like I could communicate more with people. So in a college class, when I heard about genetic counseling, that was really what resonated with me. I also did the two-year genetic counseling master's program, but during that program is when I was in the clinic doing some of that time that Alicia described about where you're working one-on-one with another genetic counselor, but you're also seeing patients. Um, And during that time, I saw what the medical geneticist role was and got really interested in dysmorphology and the physical exam and the idea of, okay, well, like, what do you do after you have this genetic result back? How do you manage this individual? What are the treatments that are available? So at that point, I was a little, I was younger in my life and thought, well, I'll just do medical school and residency and fellowship, it'll be fine. It was, you know, a couple more years of education, but I think it was really valuable. After that time, I did four years of medical school, three years of pediatrics training, and then two-year genetics residency. But during that time, you were getting a better appreciation of just human physiology, um, normal pediatric development, how to manage acutely ill patients in the emergency room, in the ICU. So that way, then when I learned genetic conditions, I could more easily recognize the difference between normal child development and the normal ranges versus something that might be concerning for a syndrome diagnosis. Um, but then also kind of have a better understanding of all those different presentations and pathology and diseases. So if an ophthalmologist calls me and starts saying, oh, I saw this and this on exam, I maybe at least have a better understanding of the vocabulary that they're using because of the medical training I have. Absolutely. We've talked a lot about similarities, a lot of um, distinguishing factors, not necessarily all out differences, but I'm interested in hearing more. Can you think of any more similarities or differences between your two professions? From the the medical side, there's a little bit of lifestyle differences. So time spent on call, we do have acutely ill patients. Our patients with conditions that are picked up on newborn screening and others that are like inborn errors of metabolism. For those patients, the geneticist really is their primary point of contact. 
So if any of our patients are sick or ill, they're calling our um, our on-call group, and then we can recommend do they need to be admitted to the hospital or not? How do we manage them? When it comes to rare diseases, our um, pediatric colleagues are amazing, but also might need a little bit of assistance about like, well, I've never seen this particular presentation of this rare disease before. How do I best manage this patient? And so we're working closely with them. But that means being on call, coming out on weekends and holidays. And so some of that, I think, is is more of a lifestyle difference, but something important to consider if that's something that could affect people's decision. Yeah, that's true. I think there is a difference in the work-life balance between geneticists and genetic counselors. For genetic counselors, there are a lot of opportunities, especially now, to work from home. So there's remote work opportunities that are available, but also you see genetic counselors working part-time. Not to say that you can fit everything you want to get done in an eight to five day, but you do see a lot more structure around, you know, what is work hours and what is home time as a genetic counselor, which can be nice. Outside of that, I think with the education component for genetic counselors, you do see genetic counselors serving as supervisors a lot more. We have genetic counseling students in clinic with us all the time. So there is a large education component as a part of being a genetic counselor because with the high demand for genetic counselors, most genetic counselors are working with a program and serving as a supervisor in some capacity as well. Not to say that geneticists don't do it with residents and fellows and everything like that, but it is a a common piece of day-to-day life for a genetic counselor too. I think the education that we give as geneticists is often to medical colleagues. And so I I teach in the medical school, I help run our residency program, but that's training people who are already doctors to become geneticists. And then also working with other doctors who kind of rotate through our clinics. Whereas I feel like on the genetic counseling side, you guys maybe have a little bit more public facing educational opportunities. There's a, yeah, that's a, that's a good point as well. The other thing that I was thinking about between a geneticist and a genetic counselor is some of the administrative Types of things. Sure. (laughs) So for genetic counselors, you know, we are the ones who are, if there's a letter of medical necessity that needs to be written, it's probably going to be the genetic counselor. The clinic notes are usually shared between geneticists and genetic counselors. In the laboratory, we're the ones that are writing the reports. What's up with that, Dr. (laughs) Hurst? So I don't run a lab. I help with the management and the interpretation afterwards. There are like lab medical directors and they're overseeing that process. In terms of the administration creation of documents, it's a team effort. I would never have expected the paperwork to be heavier on your side, Alicia. It's not to say that we don't have our share say, of yes. paperwork. Okay, good, um, good. Yes. So it's fair. It's, yes. it's shared. Oh, yes. Paperwork. Things yeah. like prior authorizations, trying to get medication coverage. I spend a lot of time um, talking to insurance companies and, you know, if a medication gets denied, uh, trying to justify why that's important for that patient. So, yes, there's definitely the administration, things on both sides. You're not going to get away from it from no. either role. <laughs> yeah. It's the moral yeah. of the story. So when you're called in to work with another physician, for example, Dr. Hurst, what, what's the information you have to have ready for them? Or is it because you're a geneticist, it's going to be different? Yeah, I think it depends on what the question that they're asking us. So sometimes the question is, could my patient have a genetic condition? What is the diagnosis? What does this test result mean? I'll give an example. Um, earlier today, I was at a, a team meeting regarding a patient that's in the, the neonatology unit. So a young baby having multiple health conditions, it's largely affecting their skin. And so the dermatology team is involved. 
but it's also affecting their airway. So we've got, you know, ENT is involved, the neonatologist who's primarily managing this patient, the surgery team has been called in, pain control and the palliative medicine team. The meeting that we had today was with all of those doctors in the room, but a lot of it related back to this patient's underlying genetic condition. And within the last week, we just got test result back with a diagnosis. And so we were the ones to be able to help put that in perspective and say, here's what this diagnosis is, what this could potentially um, impact in terms of health and how do we best manage this? What are the things that have been described in other people with this condition before? So a lot of our job is researching the literature. Things are often very, very rare. Um, So if we're lucky enough that there's been some type of medical journal or case report related to it, we can then try to summarize that information, see how does it pertain to the patient in front of us, and then try to help educate our colleagues about how that information might best be used to help the patient. You mentioned Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Are you kind of like a doctor house? That's, I, I think, think that's probably the best, the best yeah. analogy. Maybe a little bit better bedside manner. Yeah, I would um, at least be so. hoping. <laughs> but um, yeah, it really is um, medical mysteries at it, at the heart. We at UAB have an undiagnosed disease program, and that's where we meet patients who come from really all over the country who have you know a variety of symptoms. Maybe people have thought about a genetic workup before, maybe they haven't, um, but we are able to gather medical records and then bring the patient to Birmingham to help make a diagnosis. And that's a big team effort. We have a lot of subspecialists who we can kind of call on for their particular expertise, but we can kind of be a point of first contact to even summarize all that information and say, like, what do we think an underlying unifying diagnosis might might be? Yeah. And to go back to your original question as well, I think as much of the medical records that we can get in advance of seeing patients with genetic disorders is so important in helping us before we even walk in the door, be able to build a differential diagnosis list. And I think it really just helps us refine and provide better medical care for those patients too. It is really like house. I think that's a great example because you you work with the medical records, you work with the patient in front of you, you work with the family history You work with their developmental history, and you're just trying to see if there's a way to put it all together. I would assume that in a meeting like the one you were just talking about, Dr. Hurst, that it would be helpful to have someone like a genetic counselor there with you. In that meeting in particular, it was mostly like the medical team gathering together. But then, yeah, when the family gets involved and then when we're able to kind of summarize what the team's approach is going to be and then bring that to the family. I think it's always helpful to have people there who can really kind of understand the psychosocial component of the situation and help the family kind of assess their values and goals and how does this information fit in, in terms of what they think is best for their child. So it sounds like that's one of the differentiating factors as well. I mean, obviously, both of you work with family, but Alicia, when you're in these team meetings, you're mostly there to support the patient and the patient's family and to make sure that they understand everything, whereas I'm hearing from you, Dr. Hurst, you're there to try to make sure all the other physicians on the team understand what's going on. Yes, I think that's a good assessment. We are definitely, as genetic counselors, trying to make sure that the patient understands what they have, what it means for them, how they're going to go back and explain it to their family members. We are definitely taking more of an education and advocacy role. And then to Anna's point, you know, the medical management is such a big piece that they do that genetic counselors aren't necessarily a part of as heavily in any way. So that's one distinction I think we have.
So this is my favorite part. It's when we get to talk about common misconceptions or even something that folks would find surprising. Now, I know we already talked about the straight consumer genetic testing, which I remember was a sore <laughs> subject. Uh, she was <laughs> killing, sending daggers with her eyeballs. Um, what else? I think one big distinction that we try to make as genetic counselors is a separation between genetics and eugenics. I think in genetics in general, that's been such a big um, distinguishing factor. And that's part of why non-directive care is so important as a part of genetic counseling. We want to make sure that patients appreciate and understand that we are not here to tell them what to do or to tell them whether they can or cannot have kids. We just want to make sure that patients have all of the facts that they want to have and help them in making whatever decision it is that is best for them in their particular scenario. I think that's a really great point that Alicia brings up and something that um, we often have a lot of conversations about when it comes to medical management and treatments that are available. For a lot of genetic conditions, there you hear about like gene therapies or new drugs that are being developed all the time. Um, but also having a discussion about is the genetic condition really something that families want to modify or change? I'll give a quick story here, if that's okay, kind of illuminate that point. So um, there's a patient that I've followed for um, about five years now. I first met the child before they were born. When they were a fetus, there were differences on the ultrasound that pointed to a possible skeletal condition. Um, yeah, so early, you know, around that 20-week ultrasound, the anatomy scan, um, it seemed like the baby's arms and legs weren't growing as well. After birth, we, you know, were able to diagnose the condition as achondroplasia, which is the most common form of um, dwarfism or um, skeletal dysplasia. My role initially when that child was first born in the hospital was making sure they were breathing well and feeding, but also like sitting with the parents and looking at their baby registry and saying like, well, now that your child has a skeletal difference, like what's the most appropriate car seat and um, some of the items you might want to have around the house. Way and so early. for the first couple of years of life, it was more management and safety. But within the last year, there has been um, a new medication that's been approved by the FDA to um, alter height in people with achondroplasia, ages five and up. This child is now five years old and we're having a very different conversation. Is medication something that you would be interested in? And some people think of it almost like a growth hormone um, and others feel like maybe height is not something that I want to change. We have a big, long conversation about height is more than just cosmetic. For some people, it could affect their ability to be independent, to manage their own personal hygiene and wipe themselves when they're going to the bathroom. Having a few extra inches might be really important to helping that person navigate the world. But you can also imagine there's a lot of people who feel very differently about it. And it's one of those situations where, you know, people think, oh, the doctor's just going to write the prescription. But like, no, I really want to have a conversation with the family and not have it be seen as I'm trying to like modify their genetics or change who they are as a person. I've had a lot of families when we meet and have conversations about these medications, they decide they don't want to do it. Others who are very interested in it. And it's just a really personal decision families make. And I think being able to have conversations with them is the key component of that and figuring out every family's um, path and what they feel like is best. Because you're also talking about parents who are having to make that decision for their child who, you know, in 15 years might have a different opinion than what the parent chose. It's a really rapidly evolving field. That five-year-old with achondroplasia, like five years ago, I did not think that we would be at the point now where we have medications that could be used in this way. It's really helpful, I think, to have a genetics community who's thoughtful and who's thinking about all the potential implications and how that affects the overall community's feelings as well. 
Genetic testing is not as fast as CSI likes to make you believe. We get a lot of conversation about why is this test taking so long? It's not like a CBC as well. It takes a minute to extract that DNA and, and analyze it. So I think we are not holding on to information for no reason. It is, it is just a longer process sometimes than what people may anticipate to go from seeing a genetics provider before we get to the point where we can say this is truly your diagnosis. And I'd say too, the, the genetic testing is accessible if you can kind of have somebody have the conversation with you about where to look, what's the best lab, how do we work with your insurance. Um, but there are many indications for which genetic testing is absolutely covered by insurance. And so sometimes I worry that people don't make an appointment with a geneticist because they think, oh, it's going to be too expensive or that just sounds so like so fancy mm-hmm. that maybe mm-hmm. my insurance wouldn't cover it. But for you know a person who has the right symptoms, if the test is indicated, we usually have insurance approval for that. Um, even with things like you know Medicaid, Medicare, for a lot of conditions, there's there's coverage for that. And I also think about the flip side of that: that genetic testing is not 100%. Even with whole exome and whole genome, we're still not at a place where we can say there's a one and done test. That once we do this, we know everything about all of your genetic material. So it doesn't mean that because testing has been negative that you'll never have to see us again. And genetic testing too has, it's not always positive, not always negative. You, um, right, you, you might have a result today that is uncertain that in a few years changes. And so it could be important to kind of check back in with us and kind of keep that relationship going. So I have to ask, in the future, are we going to be able to pick out the eye color and hair color and smartness and size of our offspring? Well, you bring up a good point about um, multifactorial conditions. So right now, medical genetics is better at looking at like single genetic factors that have a big impact. So we're talking about like specific syndromes that are maybe due to changes in one particular gene. The most common things that we get asked about are things that are usually multifactorial, lots of different factors influence them. So you mentioned, you know, hair color intelligence, um, but also things like diabetes, hypertension, um, autism, a lot of conditions are so many genetic factors that we can't just send one genetic test and know everything about why a person acts or looks the way they do. Um, there's just so many other factors that go into that, whether it's the expression of those genes or just your environment or chance or things that science doesn't even understand yet. So that is one thing I feel bad when some of our rare disease patients have maybe waited a long time to see a geneticist and then we send a test and it's negative and that happens maybe in half the cases or more. We just don't find one unifying diagnosis. And so part of that is working with families through that, their expectations and um, where do we go from there after a negative result. Also, it keeps changing what we know and what we don't know. That's why I think it's so important for patients who have, you know, genetic disorders or concerns for a genetic disorder to just stay in touch every now and then uh, just to see what has changed over the years because we tend to know so much, you know, you bring up so many multifactorial conditions and I always think about the movie Gattaca from a thousand years ago, like me. Um, It's amazing when I first saw that movie 15 years ago versus where we are now, sometimes it does feel like we're getting closer and closer to that point now that we have whole genome and exome sequencing. But I think there's just so much we don't know about about genetics that it'll be a long time before we get to that point. And Alicia mentioned that class that you took in um, undergraduate that focused on the ethics. Yeah. And it's something that in the field of genetics, we talk about a lot is like yes. ethically, like because 
a lab scientist might be able to do something, is that really something that should be done? And so there's a lot of these conversations, the ethics of the implementation of genetic science. And so it's something the field is definitely really aware of too. So I don't anticipate designer babies soon. Me either. I think that's where the whole advocacy part of genetics, uh, geneticists and genetic counselors is so important because that's part of where we are is to try to help be disability advocates as well. Um, to make sure that we don't get to the point of designer babies. Well, and you also made a good point about how policy and ethics are important. Do you talk to parents? I mean, is that an ethical decision for some parents? There's a lot of different decisions that can go into that, even the age of a child at testing, kind of speaking generally, but usually we don't test children for things that they don't yet have symptoms for. Um, We don't want to kind of get information that might say if they may or may not be at risk for something that wouldn't even affect them until adulthood. Some testing that we can do might show those things and parents do have a choice of if they want to know things that could affect people's health in the future. But usually that's a that's a long consent process. And that's part of the, the reason why it's important to work with a genetic counselor. So that way we can discuss, hey, here are the possible things that could come up if you send this test. Yeah. And we have a lot of families who say, like, look, if this test might um, might diagnose a reason for my child's intellectual disability, but also might show if they have an increased chance for developing breast cancer in the future. I maybe don't want those adult onset conditions. Get life insurance first. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, there's just a lot of different things to consider. Um, and also if that child has a variant, it probably came from one of their parents. And so do their parents mm-hmm. want to start to open this can of worms? And and some people do and others don't. And that's really where that conversation becomes so pivotal. Yeah. And we also bring up autonomy. As a parent, we want to know as much about our children and we want to help them as much as possible, but how much autonomy in the child do we take away finding out that they are at risk for an adult onset disorder and how would that affect what job they decide to take because we know this now instead of later. So these are a lot of the different ethical things that we consider and bring up to help the family in deciding what's the best decision for them. It's a lot more complicated than I anticipated, but uh, I can see why. That's why it's helpful to have a whole team there. Yeah, (laughs) that's why we're a team approach. Thank goodness. Thank you both so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, all of the information that you shared. And um, I have an assignment for everyone to, if they have not already, to see Gattaca. Yes. (laughs) Um, It's an old classic. Apparently one of Alicia's. Critical. Critical. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the 2022 Interprofessional Leadership Fellows with the Center for Interprofessional Education and Simulation at the University of Alabama at Birmingham in association with the Department of Family and Community Medicine at UAB's Marnix E. Hearsing School of Medicine. Music and effects provided by YouTube Studios Audio Library and pixabay.com. Until next time, this is Catherine Mazone with Healthcare Who Does It. Thanks for listening. Thank you.